Lord. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became dazzling white, such that no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Then Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Uh, Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And then a cloud overshadowed them. And from the cloud there came a voice, This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they saw no one with them anymore, but only Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, he ordered them to tell no one about what they had seen until after the Son of Man had risen from the dead. The Gospel of the Lord. So this mountaintop moment of Peter, James, and John, Jesus' inner circle, happens exactly halfway through the Gospel of Mark. And it is appropriate for our reading today, Transfiguration Sunday, the last Sunday before Lent starts, because from this moment on in Mark, Jesus is moving towards Jerusalem and moving inexorably towards the cross, just as we will from this moment move in that same direction throughout the season of Lent. This moment is a linchpin in Mark's gospel, his proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ. And you can see this when you look at this text within the context of the whole Gospel of Mark. Now remember, each of these four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, are written to a particular community. And they tell the story of Jesus' life and ministry to that community, speaking to their particular questions and their needs. The community that Mark is writing to is one that continues to ask the question that the disciples of Jesus ask in the Gospel of Mark. Who is this? And it's quickly followed by another question, and what does that mean for me as his follower? Who is this, and what does that mean for me as I follow him? And so this episode is at the turning point in that understanding, both for the disciples and for us. Now, there are things here that would have been familiar to a Jewish Christian audience. The God of the Jews is a God of the mountaintops. That's where you go when you want to have an encounter with God. You go up the mountains. You see it in the story of Moses on the mountain, right? Out in the wilderness. He goes up the mountain and he encounters God's very presence, but he only gets the briefest glimpse of God's backside because he cannot, he literally cannot handle, cannot see the brightness of God's glory. 
And it is on this mountain that Moses receives the Ten Commandments. Moses appears in this story. And that evokes in the memory of the disciples and the hearers of this gospel that encounter on the mountaintop. And Moses' role in that foundational part of the Hebrew scriptures that is the Torah. Elijah also has a mountaintop encounter with God. And it's on that same mountain where Moses received the Ten Commandments. And on this mountain, Elijah experienced a wild storm with wind that broke the rocks, an earthquake that split the landscape, a fire that consumed all before it. But God was not in that spectacular display. It's only after, in the silence that follows, that Elijah can hear God's still, small voice. Elijah is the one carried away on chariots of fire, is believed to then come again to announce the coming Messiah. Elijah appears in this story, evoking in the memory of the disciples and the hearers that promise that he would come again and his role as a prophet of God. Now, Peter, James, and John are here on the mountain with Jesus, and they have this incredible experience. They, too, see God in Jesus. A presence that, unlike Moses, they can actually gaze upon, walk beside, talk with. But the question is, do they recognize what they're seeing? Do they see and understand? Now, we don't know what led up to all of this, but suddenly when they're up on the mountain, suddenly Jesus is transformed before them transfigured, changed. His earthly garments become whiter than any Tide product could get them. And they see him conversing with Elijah and Moses, Jesus in conversation with the two greatest Jews of all time, the embodiment of the scriptures, ones who have had their own encounter with God. Now, Peter, James, and John know they're seeing something of the divine, and they respond appropriately. They're terrified. They are totally freaked out. They cannot handle this. But Peter, trying desperately to overcome that, wants to build three tabernacles, three dwellings, three three markers of God's presence on that spot. He's reacting to what he sees in a way that his experience, that his faith tells him to. When you encounter God, you mark that spot. But like the disciples, both then and now do, time and again, he misses the mark. But then he gets some help, right? Suddenly a cloud overshadows them 
like the fog rolling in on the mountain top, and from this cloud comes a voice, this is my son, the beloved. Does that sound familiar at all? Where have we heard this voice before in the Gospel of Mark? Not a rhetorical question. Where have we heard it before? Because we had. At his baptism, right? When Jesus comes up out of the water, he sees the heavens ripped into the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice comes from heaven saying, you are my son, the beloved. It shows up again. And now here, it's not just Jesus who hears the voice, but these disciples. It's an acknowledgement of who Jesus is, the Son of God. But even more than that, it's an admonition and a warning. Listen to him. Every time I hear that, particularly in the Gospel of Mark, I've probably shared this before. I think of my French teacher who used to always say, écoutez class, listen class, listen to him. Admonition and warning. It's warning because they're already acting on what they saw, what they thought they knew about God and how God acted. And we know this because just prior to this encounter, Jesus has asked the disciples, hey, who do you say that I am? And Peter responds, you are the Messiah. And he's right. But did Peter, James, John, and the other disciples and the Jewish people, the Messiah was a figure of power and might. He would be the great warrior, king, and ruler priest who would lead a victorious army to conquer the Roman occupiers, throw them out of the promised land, and restore Israel to its proper place as a shining city on a hill, a beacon to the nations of right relationship with God. Jesus knows this, and he immediately seeks to redefine who the Messiah is and what the Messiah does. He says, here's what being Messiah means. It means great suffering, rejection by the Jewish leaders, being killed, three days later rising. Peter takes the Messiah and says, God forbid! Then Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, here's what the definition of Messiah means for you. You want to follow me? Deny your self-interestedness. Take up your cross and follow. Take up your symbol, not of power or might, but take up what looks like loss, suffering, weakness, death, and follow me. Peter sees in the transfiguration of Jesus, in this brightness of his clothing, it is an image that draws to mind the Shekinah of God, the pillar of fire that the Israelites followed in the wilderness. This Shekinah, this glory, this brightness of God, that even though he doesn't look God in the face, still transfers to Moses such that his face shines with it. He hears a voice from the clouds. 
Just like Moses disappeared into the clouds of God's presence on the mountain, Elijah on the mountain also hears God's voice. And from that vision, right, the sight, Peter misunderstands. So God admonishes him. Listen to him. Ecoute class. It's not see Jesus. Look at him. It's listen to what he says. Hear what he's telling you so that then you can see this event in the right way. So that you can understand who Jesus is and what that means for you. This transfiguration ties us into the beginning of the gospel of Mark, the voice and the voice at baptism, right? It also ties us into the end of Mark. For when Jesus dies on the cross, the curtain of the temple is ripped in two from top to bottom. That echo goes all the way back to the beginning, right? When Jesus comes up out of the water, he sees the heavens ripped in two. The language is exactly the same. And then we hear again at the end of the Gospel of Mark a voice saying, this is God's Son. But who does that voice belong to? It's the Roman centurion. The one standing there facing the cross as Jesus dies. It's a Gentile who has responsibility in some way for his death. And who should reserve that title, Son of God, for his emperor, his Caesar. This emperor who knew about power and military might and political control. And the centurion knew that as well. This is the one who places that title on Jesus dead on the cross. That is the one who is Son of God. And so on this Transfiguration Sunday, we sing our Alleluia's, right? We sing them with wild abandon as we get ready to put them away for a time, right? We stuff ourselves with them. Praise be to God. We do that before we begin this journey with Jesus to the cross. And we see here today once again a vivid reminder of the risen Jesus. An image that we hold before us even as we walk this journey to death and the cross. We see in this risen Jesus the mystery of Jesus who is God's son, who is God. Who is God's best self-expression to us, one that we can gaze upon and connect. Martin Luther said, this is the God who loves us because God knows we need things that we can see, taste, touch, smell. And boy, we get that in spades with Jesus, don't we? But I know for myself, I want to make sure that I'm seeing the Jesus who is and not the one that I want to see. Maybe the one that conforms to the understanding of this world. And that can only happen when we listen to Jesus. Not just look, but listen to what he says. Because the glory of God 
is not some kind of bloody victory of arms over humans. It's a victory won through self-sacrifice. It's a victory won through love and compassion, through healing and welcome, through engaging with those who revile and curse you. The glory of God and Jesus goes out into towns and villages and proclaims the good news that the reign of the world is over and the reign of God, the reign of heaven is at hand, has come close in Jesus. And it's a reign that is not ushered in by death and destruction, but by love and compassion, one that welcomes all into its midst. Now, we need the visuals, right? We are a visual people. We've learned that much, haven't we, with those little devices we all carry around and bury our heads in. So we need the visuals, the brilliance of Jesus' appearance, right? This bright shining that we can't hardly look at. This understanding that he is something other than just our friend. It's not just Buddy Christ, right? That he is the Messiah and not someone else. He's not some political ruler. He's not some victorious general. We need a reminder. Like we sang not even quite 50 days ago, we need a reminder that he is the Prince of Peace, the Holy One, Emmanuel, God with us. And that the one who saves us does not bring war, does not use coercive power, does not bully. We know who Jesus is. We know who God is by listening to Jesus. And then we proclaim that to the world. We follow that. We glory in that. For the word that is Jesus frees people from the unclean spirits that bind them. Things that separate them from other humans created in the image of God. And Jesus seeks to restore people to relationship with God and each other. Even when it is hard. Even when it is painful to do so. Love your enemies, he says. Ekutekla. Pray for those who persecute you, he says. Keep an Eighth Commandment attitude towards others. Look at what they do in the best possible way. Listen, class. And when they hurt you, echo Jesus' words on the cross. Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. This is the glory of God in Jesus. This is the real power of God in Jesus. One that he calls us to, invites us to, to live under and with and through. This is the reign of God. A reign of love and peace, of joy and wonder, of healing and wholeness. Shalom. And so that is why on this day we join our voices time and again to say, God be praised, which is, you ready for it? 
Hallelujah! Thanks be to God. I invite us to stand as we sing our hymn of the day.